we always think clearly as investors uh, ourselves, what's most likely to work going forward? And if you take a, a, a very basic model from, from 20 years ago, is it likely to work as well going forward as as you know models that have been refined and have had new features added and we've you know changed your execution profile all these these different improvements and the answer is that it's easy to replicate the past it's quite difficult to to replicate you know relatively sophisticated strategies going forward imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Top Traders Unplugged, where today Alan Dunn and I are joined by Russell Koganka, who is the Chief Investment Officer at ManHL as part of our mini-series focusing on the one investment strategy that beat everything else in 2022, namely trend-following and managed futures more broadly. First off, Russell, thanks ever so much for joining us today. We really have been looking forward to this conversation. I hope you're doing well. How was New Year's for you? Quiet, I hope. New Year's was uh, was was sufficiently quiet. Yeah, I was with the family, but um, yeah, it was uh, you know the end to a to, to quite a hectic year. So I'm glad we had a quiet New Year's. Yeah, no, I can imagine, and of course we're going to be diving into uh, a lot of that. But because we do have quite a uh, a few different topics that we're going to discuss, uh, I would like to set the stage a little bit for our conversation, so that the audience knows a little bit about man and the background. So. Without taking too long, do you mind sharing a few highlights about kind of the types of strategies that you are focus on and also kind of where the the industry or the business, I would say, uh, sits before we head into 2023? Yeah, sure. So, so Man Group is a is a, you know, a large alternative manager. We run uh, many different types of, of funds, many different types of strategies, broadly speaking, split between systematic and discretionary and we don't have too many things that, that do both uh, so AHL is in the, the systematic uh, part of the business and even within that we run many different types of funds uh, you know our, our heritage was as a, as a trend follower but we run quant equity we run uh, long only risk managed strategies the, the, the key thing about everything that we do is it's systematic 100 percent uh and it, we're active so we we trade a lot <laughs> and those are the the common things are we trade and and we do it systematically yeah no that's great appreciate that now um for our conversation today both alan and i have created kind of a list of different topics um and we won't have time probably to get through all of them um, but we'll pick a few of them as we go along. So maybe, Alan, I could uh, ask you to kick things off with kind of the first topic of today. Great, yeah. Um, well, good to speak to you, Russell. Russell. Um, I mean, you've touched on everything is systematic and you're active, which gives us a sense on your philosophy around markets and trading. But if you were to describe that philosophy, what what would you say that is in terms of what's the belief that underpins every everything about the trading strategies? Yeah, that we, we you know, I, I started in this business twenty years ago, and I, I I couldn't actually believe that there was an edge in uh, in trading at all. I always thought it was likely to disappear fairly quickly, um, and so I, that was twenty years ago, and I'm still here. So so mm. then, so there must be something. That's working, and, and and I guess our our, our belief uh, within AHL is that you know across markets there are small opportunities and small inefficiencies, and in order to capture them, 
you need to be able to to move positions around to trade in an efficient way because obviously trading is always going to be a drag on performance if you're not doing it sensibly. Um, and then you need to be uh, somewhat sensible and pragmatic about where those opportunities exist and, and also when they stop existing. And then, you know, a big part of uh, being successful in the systematic space is not actually just knowing what to trade. It's also know, knowing what not to trade. Um, so we, we spend a lot of our research process thinking about that, thinking about the drivers of returns, thinking about where inefficiencies might exist. And then when we find them, we want to exploit them as efficiently as possible and in as diversified a way as possible. You know, So in many different regions, many different markets as we can. And, and we find that putting all of those things together, so efficient trading systems, very well diversified, you can then take those small edges that you find and turn it into something that uh, makes an interesting return stream. And you mentioned, you know, trend following is the heritage of, of MAN AHL um, and how you were surprised 20 years ago that those types of strategies work. And they, they seem to be still working pretty well, judging by uh, the industry's performance last year. What's your perspective on trend following? Why, why, does, why do markets trend? Why, do, why does trend following work? Yeah, trend following, I think, is one of those, uh, you know, in, in some senses, one of the most straightforward of, of strategies, um, but also, in other ways, one of the most elegant. Uh, and and th the reason I think it works in the first place, you know, the reason why you tend to get autocorrelation in price moves is pretty much down to three, three reasons. Uh the first is that information doesn't flow immediately. It takes a bit of time for information to diffuse into a marketplace. And in a sense, markets therefore aren't 100% efficient. They take time to absorb. Um, and that means that a piece of information that you might expect should move a price 5% doesn't instantly move it 5%. It moves it maybe 3% and you know it, it takes time to propagate. So that's number one. Um, <clears throat> number two is that markets themselves and drivers of market returns tend to be autocorrelated. So if you think about um, the Fed and levels of interest rates or inflation readings or uh, economic data, all of that tends to move fairly slowly. It doesn't jump hugely from, from one place to another. It does sometimes. But most of the time, that tends to move in the same direction. So the world, to a degree, and the drivers of markets are autocorrelated. And then the third, and probably for me, the most compelling and the most uh, the one that, that kind of stands the test of time is uh, is behavior. And and you know if if any of us um, are trying to sell a property. And property prices are going up. We, you know, we're keen to to wait for a better price. And and if they're going down, we, we you know, we'll, we'll take the first, um, the the first bid. And that's just human nature. And you know, human nature actually go, that goes back as far as we have data for prices. It goes back to ancient Sumeria and some of the the ancient scrolls that have been uh, discovered about wheat prices five thousand years ago, and they tended to autocorrelate. So. Um, I think that that's the main that's the main reason. And obviously, um, you guys run more than just trend following strategies. So it's trend and, and non trend strategies. Would you say it's those same factors that is the source of inefficiency in markets, or the source of opportunity for for the non trend strategies as well? Uh, not necessarily. I think each strategy has its own uh inefficiency that it's trying to exploit sometimes that's uh, trading inefficiency or liquidity inefficiency um uh, which is less behavioral and more um liquidity driven you know if, if um there's more demand for a certain asset that the price moves don't justify then that price move tends to revert it's quite a different inefficiency and likewise for many of the fundamental strategies that, that that we would run where it's more of an inf information inefficiency if you like that there's some piece of information that's not fully reflected in the price 
So I think it, it depends. But trend following, to my mind, is very much a behavioral phenomenon. Fair enough. So maybe just the last one on, on this topic. I mean, you're... I mean, if I was to describe the man HL approach, it seems to be trend at its core, but trend plus other strategies. Um, I mean, how would you see yourself relative to other peers in the industry? Obviously, the classic answer to this is, well, you don't know what everybody else is doing. But I mean, you, you know, to, versus a pure trend follower or other types of strategies or, or, or managers, do you see yourselves as doing something particularly unique um, that you would kind of highlight when, when you're kind of presenting yourself uh, to investors? Yeah, I, I, I think it's, um, it, it's difficult in our, in our industry to, to claim anything's truly unique. There, there are a few things that I've come across in my time that I would hope are, uh, are unique, and there's certainly plenty of IP that gets created in the teams at AHL that, that is is novel IP, um, but the the thinking about trend, for example, you know all trading systems. When it comes down to it, what you're trying to deliver is the best return that you can for a given risk target or risk profile. And trend followers have a particular risk profile and, and risk target. And what what we all of our work leads us to try to do is to maximize our expect to return for that risk profile um and and that comes in many different forms it, it you know it's the, the the set of markets that you trade the set of signals that you trade how you group those signals together how you execute um various risk limits etc so th- th- there are many things and parts of a system um and our belief has always been that you can take basic trend following which is a fairly low sharp strategy but you know, with nice risk properties. Um, and then you can improve the expected returns of, of that strategy without changing the risk properties, you know, without making it not a trend strategy or not having defensive properties or, and everything else. But, but you, can, you can make it more digestible for investors because as, as much as last year was a very good year for trend following and very welcome in the context of a bad year for, for, for markets, most investors, you know, they, they don't really have the stomach for years and years of really poor performance. Um, and, and, and that means that they need to be in place. You know, they need to be there with capital invested for when uh, markets are, are more conducive to trends. I wanted just to interject here with a small uh, sort of question. I know Alan has a, a few other things to follow up on, but you you kind of mentioned that yourself in terms of it was a gratifying year and a year where other things uh, didn't do so well. And it kind of takes me back to, I don't know, 2009, 2010 to talk about uh, crisis alpha when Katie Kaminsky coined that term. And back then I was quite uh, excited about it. Um, because I thought, wow, the, here's a term that probably most members of investment committees would understand if you came in and said, we're going to allocate some money to a crisis alpha strategy. But then I'm also thinking, well, I don't really know any trend follower who specifically put anything into their models to make money in a crisis per se. So I'm just curious um, you know, what your thoughts are on on this and if you do or don't do anything specifically to try and, and have a certain... Um, you know, performance payout, so to speak, in periods of, of equity stress? Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I, I, I would agree. I think I think trend followers going into 2008 didn't consider, in, in particular, um, performance during negative equity markets. I think they thought, here's a system that, that tends to work, it tends to have nice uh, return properties, um, and, you know, that, that was the focus. And then 2008 happened, and you know, <laughs> and probably in the aftermath of that, with performance not being so brilliant, actually, directly after 2008, um, that then the focus is on, yeah, well, if you don't get quite so much return, at least you get the uh, the good performance in in, um, in in tail markets. I think if you talk to most institutional investors, they care about both. I mean, clearly they care um, about the return side, but they also do care about the crisis alpha or genuinely diversifying because there are things or strategies that are diversifying in the sense that the average correlation is low but that's actually different from 
strategies that tend to do well when the market does really badly. Um, and trend following by its nature is one of those things because when the market does badly, it doesn't. I mean, COVID was actually an exception that there was a very, very short lived um, market sell off. But most of the time, when you get market panics, it, it happens over the course of weeks and months. And, uh, you know, that, that creates nice environment for trend followers. So they tend to do well. So, so I think it's, um, I think it, you know, it's one of those things that's was never the original intention, but as time has gone on and perhaps as people's, you know, what they value has evolved and changed, it's become part of the lexicon. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. It just kind of gets to this kind of topic that came up on a recent paper from 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 Cliff Asnes and you know where he said you know there's a dual mandate effectively you know absolute return plus crisis alpha um and it sounds like that you know that you're suggesting maybe that's not strictly part of the mandate but more of a feature of of the historic performance of of trend following um you also touched on how you know the evolution of your systems has been towards you know, making trend following more digestible for investors to, to, to ensure people can stick with it and then participate in those periods. But I guess, is, is there a bit of a trade-off in terms of getting that bit more digestibility of the strategy? Are you giving up a little bit then of some of that, either the crisis alpha or some of the convexity or some of those? You, you mentioned that maintaining the risk properties, broadly speaking, but is there a, a trade-off in, in those two uh, objectives? Um. I, I don't think so. Actually. I think that the the uh, the key point about the crisis alpha um, is that if you run a very very slow trend following system, so if I if I did something that said if the price is higher than it was twelve months ago, I'll buy, and if it was lower than it was twelve months ago, I'll sell. Um, and you look at the properties of a system like that, then it actually doesn't have particularly brilliant. Uh, tail properties in a crisis because it can take quite some time to, to switch around. It, it might have okay properties in terms of return and it will certainly have good properties in terms of diversification. But in terms of crisis uh, protection, it tends not to be quite so, um, it perform quite so well in equity stress environments. And so in order to, to have a system that, that does better you need it to be a bit more reactive now that's that's the key point about um about crisis alpha and if you look at um different types of funds over different periods in the past actually that can often separate uh styles so most of the time it, same for trend followers most of the time they'll look fairly correlated in periods in which the market moves fairly quickly actually they can be positioned the different ways around um so things like covid is a good example or q4 of 2018 when you went from a low rate to attempted higher rate environment and then they they, they gave up on that uh, but those periods where you've got markets kind of really changing you know in the last year we've had um markets changing in the sense that you had volatility coming into rates and rates going up and that causing all kinds of knock-on effects obviously uh, because of inflation but that then t led to very long protracted trends so actually if you're a slow trend follower last year it's the best thing you could have done um but the the, the crisis alpha bit can be uh different because there's different types of crisis <laughs> you know mm, that's the, the most important thing um and and typically speaking the more reactive you are the more likely you are to to deliver a positive return in a crisis Fair enough. No, I'm, I, that's absolutely true. Um, I guess the the other typical kind of classic strategy that people might add to trend in a kind of a, a multi-strat kind of managed portfolio that, that Cliff Astons alluded to would be something like carry, which would tend to be uncorrelated. And, you know, it, it carry is the classic kind of opposite return profile of, of kind of trend where you consistent returns and then the periodic uh, blow-ups. Um you know, by combining carry type strategies, is that would that be blunting that kind of um, crisis alpha for wanted? Yeah, and and that kind of uh, return, that convexity, I guess you might call it. Yeah, I, I think it, it it depends how you construct it. So, it, it, if you just had a carry return stream, um, and you had a 
a trend return stream and you said, right, I'm going to add, I'm going to blend them 50-50, then clearly the, the properties of that combination are, are going to be, um, well, you may expect a slightly higher return possibly uh, for average risk, but you may expect not quite so good return during equity stress because you it takes you – uh, longer to build into those defensive positions, or maybe you pick up some of that negative skew that you get from FX carry, for example. So one way you can try to get the best of both worlds is saying most of the time when markets aren't trending, you know they aren't in a particularly stressed state, then perhaps carry makes a bit more sense. I, that's the kind of time that you'd like to, to, to be invested in carry. But if markets get into a stressed state and they become... Um, uh, you know, they enter either negative trends or they enter a higher volatility environment, then you, you know, trend becomes a dominant feature. So that's not exactly the same as adding the two things. It's like saying, well, carry's okay, except when trends are very negative, in which case I should have zero carry and focus on the negative trend. Yeah. Maybe one final one on this topic is, I mean, do you, do you philosophically kind of leave it to investors to choose? I mean, I, I think... Uh, you know, a lot of the larger firms now have kind of a solutions business to say from an investor, you can do you want a pure trend? Do you want trend plus? Do you want um, trend plus other strategies? Is is that the way it's gone? Or, you know, where do you guide investors as to what what's the appropriate uh, program or, or, or strategy for, 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 for their circumstances? Yeah, it, it, it's definitely gone that way a lot more in the last few years. I think as... as you know, for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think the offerings uh, have become more diverse. You know, you've got core trend and then you've got alternative trend and then you've perhaps got some trend plus um, uh, or quant multi-strat, et cetera. And you've got all these various blends. Um, and we've certainly noticed that over the last few years, more investors like to have a bit more discretion in terms of you know, which elements they allocate to and what, what features are most important to them. Um, so it's, it, it's, uh, it's certainly gone in that direction. That's not the case for all investors. You know, you, you'll get some who will say, you know, what's the, what's the highest sharp ratio you can, you can give me? And that that's fine. Um, but it's definitely got a, you know, for the, for the larger institutions, it's become more, more customized than it used to. Before we jump to the uh, next topic, which I'm, quite uh, interested in. I do want to just follow up on something you just uh, mentioned there. You mentioned the sharp ratio and I'm just I'm curious on your thoughts as to whether our you think our industry has become too concerned about sharp. I mean, is that actually a limiting factor for us in order to deliver what we think is the best uh way we can deliver things like trend following? Yeah, I I am um... That's a good question. I, I I think sharp can be a fairly crude measure at times, especially for something like trend, where you know what do you care about the the, the volatility, or do you care about some other downside uh, feature? So, um, you know, w- whether it's return over uh, downside deviation, or it's return over some average measure of drawdown, or it's it's some other measure that's correlated to to the tails. I do think that matters, and we, we we do when we're having those conversations with uh, with institutions. We, we do try to run through those type that that way of thinking. Don't just think about the sharp ratio. It's, it's okay. It's a it's a useful measure, all else equal. Um, but it's useful to think about those other return properties as well. And 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 I I agree with you. If you think just too too much about sharp ratio if, if in a naive world if you were given something that had a sharp ratio of two uh, and something else that had a sharp ratio of 0.8 let's say you'd say well i'd always take the two wouldn't i well not necessarily actually <laughs> especially not when the two can come with a, a nasty tail that you've not yet seen no absolutely no i appreciate that now the next thing i wanted to uh, to talk to you a little bit about is something that has become quite a big business in 2022 but it's not new uh, as such it's been around for a while uh, lots of people or some people have tried um some people have failed there seems to maybe be one group out there right now that seems to be doing a good job but we don't have that much track yet and what i'm talking about is trend replication 
or maybe CTA replication, where essentially the argument is um, we can do it for a lot lower cost and therefore you're going to be outperforming uh, just because of the savings of those costs. How do, how do you feel about um, replication um, in general? And maybe maybe I'll give you the, the second follow-up question uh, even now. And that is if you have any concerns or if you see any weaknesses with replication uh, in our space. Yeah, look, I, you guys may may have remembered the uh, time during the two thousands when there was this big kind of phenomenon called hedge fund replication, and uh, and what people did is that they they took returns of hedge fund and they regressed them against some kind of simple metrics, and they said, ah, oh, you know, I can replicate the hedge funds with these kind of simple betas, and I'll, I'll give you the same thing for a lot lower fees. It. It's really easy to, rep- to 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 replicate the past. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really very easy to make things that look good in back tests that explain uh, variance in back tests. But but going forward, you need you know we always think clearly as investors uh, ourselves what's most likely to work going forward. And if you take a a, a very basic model from from twenty years ago. Um, is it likely to work as well going forward as as you know models that have been refined and have had new features added and where you've you know changed your execution profile all these these different improvements uh, and the answer uh, that we've you know we've we've kind of done studies on this for, for many years um, and and hopefully I would like to to think proved it um, uh, through trading as well is that it's easy to replicate the past it's quite difficult to to replicate you know, relatively sophisticated strategies going forward. But let me follow up on that, Russell, because I think what the people doing it would say, yeah, maybe we can't replicate, um, you know, one particular firm. But when we take the SOCGEN CTA index, for example, or, the, or now I, I, I think actually some people are coming out with some kind of AI version of the SOCGEN trend index, um, then it's a different story. We can take the return streams and we can figure out what their likely exposure is or a way to to replicate their exposure uh, through a smaller number of markets and, and so on and so forth. Um, of course, as I said, the data is still relatively short, but so far it looks like they have done it. Uh, I have my personal concerns, but this is not about my concerns today. It's about your concerns, if any. So I'm just curious whether you think that maybe uh, that. Part of the business has also evolved, and 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 maybe there are maybe it's a different case when you do an index of of trend followers or, or CTAs. I don't know. Uh, I, I think it depends on what you know what, what you're trying to do and, and and how you're trying to do it. But certainly, utilizing some return information, uh, creating a model to try to explain that those returns, you'll always do a good job of explaining the returns. You know, and you always come up with a model that looks like it. It, um, it is uh, explaining a lot of why those returns have, have been as they are. But that, I guess, my point is, in order to make a better system, actually, you need to replicate the positions, and ideally, the positions slightly ahead of time, and be able to trade those positions very efficiently. Um, and that is something that I think you know it's easy to overlook the the. Uh, the, the importance of that, the complexity and the importance of it. So, so I, you know, and and we've all been around for for years in which these things come into fashion and they go out of fashion. But the the, the key, from my perspective, and the key message I suppose to investors is to think about your expected returns going forward. You know, what makes you convinced that whatever strategy or you know, firm or, or, or setup or you know, platform, whatever it happens to be that, that you're utilizing to produce um, returns, why do you have conviction that that's going to work going forward? And so I think um, I think the whole setup of saying, well, I'm going to try and figure out what others are doing, try to replicate it, and then implement it in a kind of slightly uh, simplistic fashion, I, I think that's difficult. It would be difficult for me to have conviction in that going forward. Alan, now we're 
heading over yeah. to something you love to talk about? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess you, we've kind of touched on on this a little bit. It's the whole kind of research. You, you, you mentioned how models that maybe that were developed 20 years ago um, might not work so well now. Um, and, you know, you kind of how all of the work you've done on, on various models has, has helped improve things. Um, I mean, against that, there are, you know, some trend followers I'm aware of in the industry who've had fairly stable systems, kind of class, what they might call classic trend followers who seem to have done very well. Um, the question is, I mean, how much, how important are, are, have those uh, improvements been? Do you, you know, if you, if you, if you kind of ran systems that had been run 20 years ago now on these on current markets, say like that, obviously last year is very good, good, good market for trend following, you know, how much uh, behind would they be kind of the performance of, of the, the more up-to-date models or can you kind of quantify the, the, the benefit of the research? Yeah. We have a process here that, that tries to focus on that specific question. There's, a, there's always the challenge with systematic investing that you have a model that works okay. And then you have a group of researchers and they do lots of research and they come up with some back tests and some theories and always those back tests make the system look better in the past, right? They always make the system look better. Um, but that's very different from saying, do they make the, the, the trading system better in, in terms of live performance? And so, uh, uh, you know, part of our entire process at AHL is to focus on that question. What's the value of changes been? And if you, if you apply that to any single change, it's very noisy, right? Let's say you make a, change where you add a, a new predictor or you change the speed of trading or something like this. Um, it's very noisy as to the impact that has over one year. But if you're doing hundreds of change, you know, making hundreds of, of, of improvements, then you start to get a sense of which of them are useful, which are not so useful and, and etc. cetera. Uh, and what we found over the years is um, tweaking a, a kind of trend following system, for example, doesn't make much difference. You, you know, you can fiddle with the speeds here and there, and you can fiddle with the market weights, but it doesn't tend to make a huge difference. Um, adding markets that are genuinely diversifying, that makes a big difference. Um, and adding models that are genuinely different somehow, that also uh, makes a difference. You know, so, so it's, it's a big feature of what we've done. I, I would say last year, by the way, the more basic the trend following system, the better. You know, the, the, the thing that held on to being short bonds for the whole year and, um, you know, was a bit kind of slower and a bit more basic and didn't have so much risk controls or risk management in there would have done spectacularly well. But in, in the fullness of time, uh, in the different types of periods, you know, the, the research and improving things, that, that for us has definitely made a difference. And... I mean, you touched on kind of tinkering with speeds a bit. Um, I mean, I, as far as I, I am aware, like if you went back to the 80s and I think the 90s, fast trend following did better back then. And there's been a kind of a degradation over time and kind of a suggestion that the industry has shifted to be a bit slower over over time. Um, I mean, if you notice something like that, you know, uh, that there seems to be a degradation, I guess, what would it what would it take to, for, for, for you to kind of significantly change the profile of the overall system in terms of its speed? And would you need would you need kind of some intuition around what's that something is changing in market that the market microstructure might be changing to, to, to shift things or would you know would you just be driven by the data? I, I think often what happens is number one you need you need good analytics for these types of things. So you need to understand how those patterns have evolved through time. And the second is if you have a, uh, an intuition as to why, then it really hugely helps in, in, in making decisions. And so in, in that example of fast trading stopping working um, or fast, fast uh, trend following to a point, that's fairly intuitive. You know, as markets get a bit more efficient, uh, you would expect that that if you go back to your question at the start about what drives trend following, and I said one of the things was 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 information leakage. Well, I think that thing has has got you know there's a lot less information uh, 
leakage through time, the markets have become more efficient. And therefore, you might think that particular inefficiency drives short-term trend following much more than it does long-term trend following. Um, and so we, we might reasonably expect that as markets become more efficient, which is not all markets, by the way, it, it's, you know, some markets, um, that, that those types of signals tend to perform less well. And you would expect that to that it's not going to come back. You know, it's, it's something that, that, that was there when markets were less efficient, they become more efficient and they're not going to become less efficient again. Um, so I think the, the, the intuition helps. I mean, you... Um, you need to be careful about being too confident in, in uh, whatever assertions you make, because markets always tend to have a way of, uh, you know, surprising people. Um, but but I think those those are the two things that we'd use. You know, good data, good analytics, and then some intuition as to why something's happening. Fair enough. Um, I mean, for for a lot of managed features managers in the last number of years, it seems that execution has been a big area of focus, um, and that seems to be a source of almost becoming a source of alpha. Um, has that been the same for you guys? And, you know, the, with, with some medium-term, um, medium-to-long-term systems, you know, I've heard the suggestion from managers in the past that, well, it doesn't really matter if we trade it today or tomorrow. I mean, from a medium-term trend-following perspective, it's it's a bit of a wash. Would you agree with that? Or And then why is execution um, and, and, and being so timely so, so important for, for these types of systems? I think what execution allows you to do, what really good execution allows you to do is harvest a richer set of alphas. And, and that's a really important thing. So if I was running like a, a really basic slow trend following system, I don't think that my execution quality matters that much. You know, you're, you're someone who said it, you could do it today or tomorrow. It doesn't make too much of a difference. I think that's, that, that's probably a reasonable statement, but, but what a really good execution uh, system allows you to do is introduce many different types of alphas that you can trade around the edges and still be a, you know, retain the overall risk properties of your system, but improve the expected return. So, so an example of that, we've got a team uh, here at AHL who are running short-term trading models. And short-term for us is kind of hours to, to days. You know, it's not super high frequency, but it's it's not super slow. And they were making good PL, you know, very uh, diversified from, from trend following, very different set of signals. Good PL, but it's kind of capacity limited. There's a certain amount that you can put into those types of systems as a standalone. And they were operating as a standalone team. But if we use some of, uh, of those alphas, some of those skills that they have, and use it to adapt the trade profile of slower systems, then actually what we can do is we don't change the amount that we trade at all. We just change the, the slightly the timing of the way that we trade. And that means that we can exploit a lot more of that alpha in a, in a bigger scale. So so, um, so I think yeah, to answer your question, that's what it gives you. Really good execution gives you more ability to, to enable different sources of alpha. Yeah, no, I was, um, there's a couple of things. One, and you've already kind of alluded to it. Um, so maybe for me, it's more of a, a, a little bit of a, a statement. You mentioned this thing that it's much better to trade uh, more markets, especially when you can find diversified ones. And I think that makes logical sense. Um, however, uh, I've all often said on the podcast that when I look at our industry, I don't really see any strong evidence that the firms that at least I know that trades hundreds of markets, that they are performing better. Uh, maybe they can manage more money. That's fair. That's also valuable, of course. Um, but um, but so, so 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 let we'll leave that at, at at that. However, one thing I've heard you say in the past, which I would love for you to to repeat here if you remember it, and that is, you had this great explanation where you talked about why you think it's better to have dynamic position sizing or dynamic position management compared to static because this has been a big conversation between some uh, of my co-hosts here uh, on the podcast and I don't think there is a right or wrong per se but I'm always curious to hear different views as to why people feel one way or the other. So I don't know if you remember, Russell, uh, uh, what you talked about, um, but it had something to do, I think, with 
the fact that volatility changes, risk changes, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't. So there's a, there's a danger here that I'm completely contradicting. That's what fine. No worries. In the past, but <laughs> I, I would I would you know hopefully I'd give the same answer. But but that bit in markets is hugely important in our uh, understanding of them and, and and probably in our entire philosophy of, of how we approach trading systems. Returns in markets are fairly difficult to predict. You know, there's a fairly small edge. But risk in markets is is much easier to predict, and it's much more time varying, and it's intuitively time varying, and there are so many examples of that that we'll have lived through. But but you know perhaps some of the of the listeners haven't. If if you um, remember credit markets back in two thousand and seven, you would have been trading for several years and not really seen anything in the way of volatility. You know, very calm market, maybe credit spreads moving a couple of basis points uh, a day. So all of a sudden in July 2007, some stress started coming into that market and two basis points turned into three and turned into five and turned into 10. And all of a sudden, day after day after day, the, the, the order of magnitude uh, of the moves, or the, the moves are an order of magnitude bigger than, than they have been. Um, and, and so what position scaling allows you to do is, is to control risk. And, it, and if you're not careful, you get the wrong side of an event like that. It, it can have a hugely damaging impact on uh, on returns. You might get the right side of it, and you might be lucky. But if you, but, but you know, we would approach all of these things as we want to maximize our chance of maximizing returns. In order to maximize our chance of maximizing returns, we need to make sure we're still around and still functioning and still um, preserving our capital base. Okay, that. If, if, so if I can just interject there, because um, the argument from um, the other side of the argument uh, would be uh, that, well, that's what our stop loss will do. That, that's going to keep us in business. It has kept us in business for decades. Um, and by changing positions, there is a risk. And I, I don't want to, um, I mean, I have my own reasons as to why I don't think this applies. But but they, you know, th- th- there is the argument that, well, the the um, the money you're going to make on the outliers that trend followers are sort of deep down hoping for and hunting for um, is going to be smaller. Now, again, I don't want to put forward my view on this, so I'd love to hear your view as to why you think that still, even if you may at times be reducing position sizes, you're still not going to lose out from you know having a static position I- into a trend like whatever, Tesla, Moderna, whatever, you know, just to, to pick a, a, a few really big ones that we all remember. Yeah, look, I think uh, I think if, you, if you're looking at a very diversified portfolio of positions, you could argue that, well, if I've got good stop losses in place, I can I can control my risk profile that way. And, and I'm sure there's, you know, you could do some empirical tests and, um, and, and, and illustrate that to be the case. I would say, though, that given that we know that, that risk changes through time, I mean, intuitively, we, we know it, we feel it, we see it. There's, I mean, you know, as much empirical evidence as anything in financial markets that, that risk predictably changes through time. Um, then you, you, in my view, want to be able to trade your system, particularly in risky markets. I mean, in risk, you know, stressful markets are the markets in which trend following systems tend to do best. And so what position sizing allows you to do is stay in the game during stressful markets. If you just had a stop loss system, it might be that the market swings around and it knocks you out and then you lose your exposure for for, for, for that period coming up. So so I would say good, good risk management is, you know, or, or, or dynamic position scaling, whichever way you call it, just allows you to, you know, run your systems, whatever the market conditions. Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess changing gears a little bit, uh, you know, talking about, I, I guess it's related to this in terms of managing drawdowns, and and, and I suppose that's what 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 you're getting at in terms of that um, position size management. But I mean, more generally, kind of, the, it's a philosophical question you touched about at the outset: of why markets trend and why trend following works. But you obviously have these periods where trend following 
struggles and we have these long drawdowns and I suppose if you think about it, it's not like that speed of dissemination of price has changed in those periods. And it's not like people's behavioral biases have gone away in those periods. So why does it seemingly seemingly stop working for periods or, or why is it performing less well in some periods? Yeah, so, so <clears throat> I think people's first concern, and certainly was their concern for many years during the last decade, was, well, you know, everyone knows about this strategy now and it's become quite crowded and therefore why should we expect it to work anymore? And that's a perfectly logical and understandable um, hypothesis for, 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 for any system. You know, if loads of huge amounts of people are doing it, surely it becomes less efficient. There's one quite nice way you can test this, uh, which is to say, split your trend up so so take a market and let's say i create a trend signal using moving average crossover so i have some signal that tells me at some point if the fast uh, moving average goes above the slow moving average i take a long position and look at the price evolution of that market at some point it will reach a peak the trend followers never exit at the peak you know they need to see the price coming down again before they exit and at some point, the fast goes back below the, the the slow and you exit your position. So you've got an entry point, you've got a maximum, and you've got an exit point. In order for trend to be profitable, the exit needs to be higher in the case of going long than the entry. But that's quite a nice way of decomposing the return because then you can say how much is due to my trend and how much was due to the reversal. And, and you may expect... Um, as markets become, if, if you just do a thought experiment for a second, you say, I'm just going to dump loads of trend followers into a system and I'm going to keep adding the, the impact of trend followers to a system, what tends to happen? Well, it doesn't make the trend any worse, actually. It tends to push the price up a, a bit more. And if, if anything, it can kind of overextend uh, the trend. But, but what certainly happens is they're all exiting the position at the same time and it makes the the, the reversal much worse. So that's what happens in theory. What happened during the 2010s uh, in liquid markets, so when I say liquid, I mean uh, G10, you know, the, the, the biggest markets out there, wasn't that the reversals got any worse. It was that the trends weren't as strong. And I would say uh, that the reason for that, our, our hypothesis um, is that you had very compressed markets during the 2010s because you essentially had interest rates uh, flawed. You had central banks acting as a, as a, as a kind of backstop um, behind markets. You had them acting in concert. And so during this period of very, very loose monetary policy and coordinated central bank action, all of that served to compress volatility and make markets more correlated. And if you think about what's good for trend which is a positive convexity strategy on lots of markets you want low correlation and you know you want things to move um and, and when you took markets that were kind of less influenced by central banks well those continue to trend pretty well during the last decade so you know given all the evidence i would say that's a that's our explanation Neil, that's probably a good segue into, I mean, that, that discussion around capacity and AUM. Yeah, no, absolutely. We'll try and hit a few more topics before we wrap up for for uh, for today. Um, and it is something that um, I think is talked about uh, a fair bit. And, you know, um, do people uh, end up with too much money in their strategies? Um, and so I'd love to hear your thoughts about capacity uh, in general, but maybe also about fees. Um, I... Um, you know, I've come across, obviously, we know that there's been a lot of pressure on fees, but not just in hedge fund, but certainly in CTAs. And we've seen a lot of these flat fee uh, products come out. And, and I apologize because I don't know exactly what, what fee structures you offer. So I don't know if I'm tr treading on, on any toes here. Um, but what I've come across more recently, which is kind of interesting, and that is that uh, with some of these pension fund money that came in quite, you know, big time during the last 10 years, you know, fees were beaten down a lot for, from, from the, you know, in the firms where they took the money. And now, 
um, I see kind of some evidence of the fact that some of that money is now being returned to these clients because the fees are simply not attractive enough because there's more demand and 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 but also there is a capacity issue that you know firms know that you can't continue forever to uh, just add more AUM. H- how do you how do you think about this? Uh, is it something that's an issue in in you know for you or just in general? I'm I'm curious. Yeah. So, so my my view on that is, is you know, f- first off, most strategies have a capacity limit. Um, it's different for different types of strategies. So, if if I were to take alternative trend, as we call it, trend on alternative markets, that's limited by how big a position you can take in in various markets. And typically, that how big a position you you can take is a function of liquidity and how quickly you can exit that position. And all of that, when you put it to constructing a portfolio, sets a limit on on how how much AUM you can run. Um, and the true the, the same is true of all strategies to some degree. Now, now, trend following on the thirty or fifty most liquid futures out there is a huge capacity strategy. You can run a lot uh, in that type of strategy. Um, and Pricing really comes down to supply and demand. You, you know, if, if there's huge amounts of supply and lots of people are do, providing you the same thing, here you go, here's exactly the same return stream and you're, that's what you're buying. Um, then then clearly, if there's lots of supply out there, um, then the, the, the price should, should reflect it and it should come down. And, and where there's kind of limited supply and, you know, the, you're offering something that, that's... Um, valuable either in the sense that it's limited or valuable in the sense that it, it has better properties, then the price of that's going to be higher. And I, I tend to think, in all honesty, the marketplace kind of sorts itself out. You know, I mean, we're, we're, we're all going to believe in, 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 in free markets. And that is not just true in terms of trading, it's true in terms of investors as well. And, and so, um, you know, the, the, the products that we run that are closed, which is a lot of what we do, demand a premium as, as you would expect and those where we can run really high uh, levels of capacity and uh, there's a more competitive marketplace for it we can run it at lower fees so we, we, we'll try and cover cover both okay no that's fair um, we only got another sort of 15 minutes or so Alan so let's see if we can hit the last few topics uh, yeah Russell well maybe just talking about the role of managed futures and trend following in in the context of of a of a larger portfolio so if 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 I was like running an endowment or something like that coming to think about how to how much to allocate to trend following what's the role and and maybe first of all you know how should allocators be thinking about the expected returns for these strategies obviously you can look back historically and say you know since 2000, whatever it is, the stock chain trend has a sharp of maybe 0.4. It might be a bit higher after last year, but whatever it is, is that the starting point or is there any other way of thinking about expected returns for, for strategies like this? Um, I think in terms of, uh, of the, the fit to the portfolio, you know, people need to do, modeling of of whole portfolios and they need to think about uh you know tail scenarios as well as average years um and the the perhaps uh you know useful position which we're we're now in is that after having years of of real plain sailing uh for, for most you know static long only portfolios they've really appreciated the value of a more active approach and a, and a more complementary approach uh, last year. Um, so, so so that's something that, that certainly we would emphasize. Think about properties during environments which are difficult for the rest of your portfolio, not just average correlation, but in, in particular um, uh, tail properties. And then in terms of expected return, I mean, we, we wrote something. I don't think we ever published it, but we – we did it for some of our clients several years ago, kind of categorizing, okay, if you take a, a straightforward trend system, it has an expected shaft of about 0.4. If you do various, you know, add alternative markets and you change your execution, you add some different out, then you can return, retain those same overall risk properties, but improve your expected return. And so, um, I think where you want to get to with trend, and certainly where um, 
where it's been over the years, and I think it, it should be going forward, is you should be able to add trend to your portfolio and it doesn't detract from the expected return of your portfolio. It should at least keep it as good as it was before you added the trend and very much improve the tail. Okay. So, I mean, when, you know, from my experience of speaking to other investors and, you know, presenting managed future solutions that, you know, once people say, yeah, I like it, the next questions are typically, you know, how much, and where do I fund it from? Is it from the kind of the equity side or from or from the fixed income side? And then sometimes there's the additional question of, you know, can I time this? Um, how would you answer those questions? I think for in terms of where you take it from, trends should, should be a genuinely diversifying return stream to, to any static investment. And therefore, really, you should keep the bulk of your portfolio weights the same and just say, you know, let, let's say at a hundred dollars, and it was sixty equities and forty bonds. We'll just multiply both of those bits by 0.9 and, and 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 give ten to trend, and that should improve the properties of, of, of a portfolio. Uh, sorry, your second question. So uh, then, is 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 how much? I guess you know, if you ran a an optimization historically, bonds, equities, and managed futures, it would tend to come out with uh, you know a number that most probably institutional investors would would find very Hi. Yes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So is that still the right answer or, you know, how to think about sizing? I think I think it depends on the mandate of, of, of the investor, to be honest with you. If I was ask, answering the question on a personal basis where I don't have any, uh, you know, benchmarks to worry about or anything else, then my percentage would be pretty high because I think I, I you know, I would hopefully think I, I could, uh, access some you know high expect to return trend systems and therefore if the expect to return of something is higher than than it is of stocks then you'll you'll likely have a higher allocation than, than you would to stocks i think for most investors that that's totally unrealistic and you know they're very aware of their benchmark and therefore it becomes more in that you know 10 20 percent range but you know we're always going to answer the, 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 the highest <laughs> and in terms of the quickly on on timing and you know can you trend follow trend following it's it's a topic that always comes up periodically yeah. what are your thoughts on that that that, that i think is um, is a difficult one to the to the extent that um, you need to be able to know when to change your mind on those things and how quickly you can change your mind um so I think there are certain uh, metrics that might lead us to be a bit more confident in trend. So, you know, the, the average forward-looking volatility tends to be better if it's a bit higher. Uh, the average correlation between markets trend tends to be better if it's a bit lower. But having said that, you know, you need to be able to react. In order for that approach to work, and in order to be a bit more adaptive, number one, you need to have other things that you're going to allocate to fairly quickly. Um, and number two, you need to be able to to make that change uh, fairly quickly. And and given that it, practically for most people that that's unrealistic, I would err on the side of saying don't bother timing it. And in particular, um, you know, you have to be tolerant of of periods of poor performance. It's not a high sharp strategy, and therefore you'll go through periods of poor performance. And that those bits that it tends to do very very well are often after it's. F- it's followed some period of of, uh, of worse performance. So, so um, yeah, we, we and and look, I think most clients these days and most investors are, uh, they appreciate that and they understand that and they've they've been through the the bad times as well as the good times and uh, you know that, that leads to a slightly more kind of long term outlook. Yeah, no, I just got a few kind of uh, different types of uh, of questions uh, that I wanted to uh, to touch on. One is something that hasn't really been a, an issue for for quite a few years, and that's uh, cash management because there were no return. In fact, we were doing our best to uh, to minimize the drag, I guess, for investors. Uh, prior to that period, of course, a lot of people just left all the money we were having from the funds in in the bank. And then we realized, whoa, banks can go down. So that's not a good idea either. <laughs> now we don't live in a zero interest rate environment anymore. So I'm just curious, um, what do you do with the cash that sits uh, in the various funds you manage, but that you don't need for margin purposes? Yeah, so so we have a, a cash management team. 
at Man Group, and it's a, it's a central team. It runs across all of the different divisions, and we don't try to do anything heroic with that cash. We'll try to to uh, we, you know we we don't want that to be a source of risk whatsoever. We just want to make sure um, that in a risk free sense, we're, we're getting the best yield that we can. So normally, it's a it's a combination of T bills and you know various kind of very secure government debt, and that's. Yeah, I know that there are people who who try and be a bit more kind of risk taking on that part of the book, but I I just think it's for us that that's not where we should be, you know, trying to take risk or make money. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Now another thing I wanted to ask you more like kind of a rapid fire question, maybe even than that is, you know, what's the one thing you hear about trend following that you disagree with the most? Ooh, that's a. Uh... That's a that's a good question. I disagree with the most. Yes, yeah. We didn't want to make it easy for you, of course. Yeah. <laughs> There's sometimes a sense with people, and you know, the re- the reality is at least the noise or what you hear or topics of conversation can be quite short term. You know, if trend is doing well, then the kind of there's not not much complaining, and if it's doing badly, there's much there's much more complaining. And and I think um, one one kind of problem that or 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 complaint observation that we used to have is but you take all of these big directional positions and you know they're going to go they're going to go wrong you're going to be the wrong way around on the market and isn't that going to blow up the portfolio type thing um and, and the reality is actually if you were to hold those positions let's say we took the biggest set of exposures we happen to have at one particular point and held them throughout time that would be a fairly disastrous thing to do but the whole point and so instead of thinking about point in time exposure which is important and you need to measure manage those risks you need to think about how the system involves and is dynamic and so it's very very different if i go through a period of the the performance us being long equities and the performance being correlated with equities. I think it's that bit of saying, well, you're just, you just got equity beta. <laughs> well, we, at the, we had it for those three months, but it doesn't mean anything about the next six months. Yeah, no, no, I, I completely agree with that. Now, I've just got two uh, questions left. Uh, the other one I, I, I was thinking about, and that is, you know, um, if you are on the other side of the table, so an allocator looking in at one of your strategies, what, what would be, in your opinion, um, a question that that you they should be asking uh, you and and uh, and also um, uh, maybe maybe it's something that it, during these due diligence conversations you you kind of get the sense that it, it it's never brought up but actually it's quite an important question is there something that springs to mind? Yeah, I, I, I you know as, as I said earlier, I think it's the the investor's job um, to to build conviction that this system or strategy or you know group of uh, of people running the strategy uh, are going to do a good job going forward um and there are there are many parts of a system you know there are many kind of components that 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 make up that um that build up that conviction um so i think it's a bit difficult to to ask anyone but what i would want as an investor is to make sure that you're running a systematic strategy. And so in theory, a systematic strategy is built on a set of rules and it follows those that, that, those set of rules. And I would w- want some reassurance that your process, as you evolve, as you perhaps modify the strategy or improve the strategy, you're confident in that process. The process is well built and it's well engineered and it protects not just, it protects the integrity of the system, as well as you know, improving results going forward. I think that's the bit that I would focus most on. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, well, we are recording at the very, very beginning of 2023. So I just wanted to finish off with with a simple question. And that is what 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 are you most excited about? Um, or maybe what 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 concerns do you have um, for for the year ahead? And you can choose whether it's about system trading, global macro events. It's it's all open field, uh, uh, open forum. Look, you know, we 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 started last year, and we thought we're in a really changing world, and and um, and the environment's uncertain. And we start this year, and it's even more so. You know, you look back at the things that happened last year, and there were so many events. You know, take nickel 
for example. That was way back in March. We were doing a, a review of the year just a couple of days ago. God, nickel, that, that kind of uh, that huge event in the nickel market. So it was actually in 2022. We were all uh, under work from home guidance in the UK in 2022. So, so such a huge amount of uh, things happened last year that I, um, from from a kind of you know, macro perspective, I think we're we've all learned to to run at this kind of really fast pace. You know, the world seems, seems the market seems to be moving um, so fast. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm kind of glad that we uh, are in the systematic space and we have <laughs> algorithms to try and kind of navigate it for us. And the focus for us as as always, but particularly now, is making sure technology platform is fit for purpose and as you think about kind of next generation and what asset classes you're trying to add and you make sure your research platform is is doing the best job it can for all of the researchers and so it's um that that's that that's our our kind of big thing for this year to try and you know focus on what you can do to improve things and try as much as you can to to block out all the noise yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. On that note, we're going to wrap up this fascinating conversation. Russell, thank you so much for being on the podcast and for sharing your thoughts and insights with us. We hope that we can do this again sometime in the future. And to all of you listening today, I hope you were able to take something from today's conversation uh, onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues and send us comments to let us know what topics you want us to bring up in the upcoming conversation with industry leaders in the world of finance and investing. From Alan and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged as we continue our deep dive into the CTA industry. And in the meantime, go and check out the show notes for this episode and all the other resources you could find on the website. And not least, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.